Welcome to another WLRN Extended Interview. My name is April No, WLRN Canadian member. And as a t-shirt of our next interviewee points out, I am also a future corpse. <laughs> I had the immense honor of sitting down with our next guest, Dr. Susan Schragley, published author, university professor, and newly minted death doula. Susan is teaching two courses related to death and dying and has over 20 years of experience as a palliative care volunteer. In this interview, she discusses the causes of our death denial, the antidote to that denial, and why our culture desperately needs a death revolution. But Susan is much more than that. She is also my dear friend. I hope our conversation both inspires and amuses you, as it certainly did the both of us. Enjoy, sisters. I'm here with Dr. Susan Shrigley. It's like Wrigley with an S. <laughs> Could you talk about the difference between like the palliative care that you've done and what does it mean to be a death doula? Okay, so probably the, the first distinction to make is what is the difference between palliative care and hospice care? And okay. this varies depending on what country you're in. So in the Canadian context, um, palliative care is, not, is, a, is, is a supportive care that is not only for people with a terminal condition. So uh, a young adult can have palliative care, um, a middle-aged adult, right? So it's not that you are dying imminently. You have uh, an illness or a condition or a disease for which uh, a certain kind of support is required that, that eases the symptoms of that illness. Hospice care is where you're, you have... Normally, it's a diagnosis of less than six months to live. And so and hospice care can be residential hospice, like we have in North Bay, Nipissing Serenity Hospice, or it can be home hospice care. Um, and, and that is, you know, the cessation of any kind of treatments that are trying to um, treat the condition. Uh, so if you were dying of cancer, you would no longer be having radiation or chemotherapy or things like that. But you would be having, um, you'd still have, you know, pain control and all those kinds of things, comfort measures, um, really sort of allowing the last part of your life to be as full and as complete as possible. And so that's why most hospices are in a home-like setting and, and you know, they, you know, they have chefs cooking food for you and your families, your families are welcome, there's, you know, all those kinds of things. And so, and then you asked about that in relation to death doulas. So I think, you know, death doulas have connections to hospice palliative care, um, but death doulas are, I think, really a reclaiming of the kind of death care we used to do for our loved ones at home. And death doulas, the, the term doula actually means to serve. So it's um, serving and caring for the dying and all aspects of the of the death spectrum so that includes 
um, preparing for death, even before one has a terminal diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, death doulas work with people in the prime of life to Mm -hmm. get their affairs in order, how to think about this, think about what you want, think about uh, legacies for your for your families, wills, Mm -hmm. uh, all of those kinds of things. Then also guiding through the dying process. So that includes, you know, being there for respite and support for the family, uh, vigiling, sitting with the dying person. And then after a death occurs, the follow-up kind of care. So that could be facilitating a home funeral, helping the people, uh, the, the loved ones, uh, you know, bathe and shroud uh, their person. And, and then potentially having some kind of a home funeral or a service if they want. And then sort of the wrapping up the final kinds of things that you have to do after someone dies, the legal things and all that. And so death doulas cover that spectrum, mm-hmm. right? So in the same way that a birth doula ushers in life and supports, you know, women who are, are giving birth and that entire process, death doulas help usher us out of this life and all of the attending things around it. And so, you know, and they could be doing, you know, some might focus on some parts of it and some focus on other parts of it. Mm -hmm. I'm really interested in, you know, I'm interested in as a death doula. And when I sort of begin like a formal death doula practice, which I have not yet at this point, Mm -hmm. uh, I'm interested in um, the process of companioning, which I've done as a palliative care volunteer for years being with people who are dying, helping support their families, cooking. I cook a lot. I make a lot of soup. Uh, and, but also, you know, reassuring people that this is okay, this is safe, this is natural, reminding people that the kind of, you know, process that's happening is, is not an emergency. And to also then follow up with the aftercare. So I think that being able to be with your loved one after they die for a period of time is really important. And, and given the modern funeral industry, this does not happen nearly enough. People don't know that they have a right to be with their loved ones after they die, right? They're, mm-hmm. um, and so this is another reason why education is so important mm-hmm. because I think a lot of the time people don't know what's possible. Mm-hmm. And there might be an instinctual desire to be, like, you know, when someone dies, to be with that person, um, and to, to do all of those intimate things like bathing the body yeah. and anointing the body and wrapping the body in a shroud, uh, and, you know, decorating, um, a, a cardboard coffin, you know, and, and kids being part of that and whole families being part of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that that's, I think that's probably one of the most beautiful aspects of death work to mm-hmm. me. Uh, I, I, yeah, I want to be able to do that for my family. I want to do that for my friends. I want to be able to do that for people, you know, Mm. in the future. Yeah. When I was reading about like becoming a death doula and what it, what it meant and stuff, I felt like there was a lot more education work and, you know, and, and I think about it too, in terms of like how far we've gone, like we've almost sanitized the process completely away from our lives. I know. It's and, and, you know, that's the amazing thing. We have completely outsourced death. I think that's really the issue here. Yeah. We have outsourced death to the modern funeral industry, a multi-billion dollar industry, may I add, <laughs> right? Um, death work has always been done uh, in the home, usually by women, uh, with lots of kids around, 
and the families, right? People coming and going. And I think that, you know, it's really only in the last hundred years or so that we have done this outsourcing of our death work. And, you know, I think that the ones who are picking it up now, again, are largely women who are reclaiming what all of our ancestors did. Mm-hmm. They're reclaiming uh, an act of love that we have been deprived of. And I think that this is a real loss. And I, th- I really do believe that it is a loss for our culture and mm-hmm. it has contributed to our death denial. It has contributed to our fears and phobias around death. And it has, you know, frankly, it has terrified my students Mm -hmm. And I deal with so much death anxiety in my students that is often alleviated over the course of a term of taking the course because, you know, Mm -hmm. I get to remind them of, you know, the, the naturalness of death, the normalcy of death, and to show them that the reason they are so fearful is because they haven't ever seen people die. They haven't been around death, right? So... Think of anything that is unknown. So we have the unknown of what happens after we die. That's the big mystery, right? Which can be terrifying, but also fascinating. But we also have the unknown of we just, we don't, we just don't know what it looks like to die. We don't, we don't even know how to die. It is as simple as being in a room with someone who is dying. The more you do it, the more Mm -hmm. you see how natural and normal it is. You know, hospice nurse Julie is someone I follow on Instagram. And, and she said recently on a podcast about how, you know, the body is, you know, the body is made to be born, like it's equipped with all that's necessary for a birth to happen, both for the mother and the being that's being born into the world. And the body also knows how to die, right? It has a very complex process of shutting down that is part of the death process. Mm-hmm. And it knows how to do it. I think what we're lacking is, you know, the the spiritual and emotional uh, intelligence around working with that thing that our body knows how to do. And I think we don't know it and we don't practice it because we don't talk about it. So, and we hide it. And that's, you know, that's the outsourcing. I mean, why do we think that we stopped it? Like what on earth happened to us to say, let's just Mm -hmm. move that away. I mean, of course, as a feminist, you know, I, I would be I would be remiss to not talk about how I think our separation from nature, right? Because yeah. for me, I always think, you know, what can I learn in a course that I can't learn from a compost pile? <laughs> because I'm a country girl, and you know, my country roots uh, run deep. But um, but I think like I think part of this is really just our. You know, like I think about my neighbor who like as soon as a leaf falls, he like quickly hurries to like grab it. Or if there's like a little hint that there's going to be like a dandelion on the lawn, he's like mowing it over. And I feel like this is just a continuation with us not really wanting to even admit Uh that we're part of the natural world, right? That dies. That dies. You know, cyclically all the time in front of our eyes. Like could you imagine the whole world full of people who just don't die? Like it would just be not only weird, but... Like it, um, it can't really function. Like that's how life begins. Life begins with yeah. a death. I mean, I, and that was one of the hardest things that I, <clears throat> one of the hardest things to accept in my life, 
was the fact that things had to die for me to be alive. Like, what what did you do to, to earn that? You know, the the birds that I'm displacing because of the agricultural crop, you know? there's Everything yeah. is dying for me to live. I think you should worry about those things. I think it's important. But, you know, another way of thinking about it is just the fact that we are all interconnected. I know. Right? Yeah. So to think about interconnectedness is not You're right. as much as a focus on this thing died for me. But that this is true of all of us in so many different complex ways of the entire world, yes. right? And I think being mindful of that interconnectedness mm. is something that actually contributes to a better way of recognizing, you know, how precarious things are and just to be mindful of that fact. I think that matters. And I think that changes the way we live in the world, you know, this, this this sense of awareness, I think, is the more important thing. I think for the most part, what I witness in society, in our modern Western society, is, is a complete lack of awareness. I mean, you're aware because you're you, and that's the wonderful bit about you, and you think about these things. But I think most people don't think about them. And I, I want to encourage people. That's what I think education is about, is encouraging people to be aware of who they are and where they are and, and where they fit into this very complex web of systems, right? Because if we don't think about that, if we're just staring at our screens and avoiding all that's out there, I mean, to be out in nature is to learn about death. I think you're absolutely right. The comparable experience, I did a uh, an art of dying retreat with a couple of um, women who are um, uh, Buddhist teachers. And one of the practices that we did was, you know, going through a process of our body shutting down and death occurring. And so it's, it's, you know, based on some Buddhist scriptures and, you know, we were all lying down in the meditation hall and we were essentially being guided through the process that happens as your body uh, slowly, as the elements of your body dissolve. And I also found that this in, to be this incredibly organic beautiful, you know, process. And, you know, really most of this, you know, is just familiarizing yourself with the mm -hmm. reality of who and what you are, which is a mortal being, which is going to die. And it's not, it's not, you know, you'd think that that's, you know, scary. And there are groups who do living funerals, who, you know, get together and have these sessions where everyone's lying in coffins, imagining it. Because if you talk mm -hmm. to people of what they're afraid of when you talk about death, you know, I'm reading assignments right now by my students, which is a death reflection. And they have to describe um, their experiences with death thus far in their life. Uh, and for most of my students who are anywhere from 17 to 20 years old, I have some older students as well sometimes, but most of them have really only experienced the death of a pet, which is mm. often an introduction to death and really deeply felt by them. And also having no guidance around that either, right? Like, I think that this can be applicable not just to our experience of human deaths, but I think we need to include animals in this, which, you know, points to my deepest dream, which is to open an animal hospice one day. Mm -hmm. But that's what I would like to do. I've started with adopting the senior dogs that we only get for a period of time. But just eventually... take my money. Okay. Well, <laughs> you, you, will come money. And, you will come and work with us. Oh my and God. we'll do, you know, therapeutic touch and Reiki on the animals um, and care for them. But... But I think we need to I think we need to make it more inclusive, especially as I read all of these really profound accounts by my students of their experience of pet deaths.
Um, but, you know, we're, we don't, because we don't talk about this, um, you know, and because it's not part of our culture and our lived experience, the biggest fear that my students and that people I talk to have is, is not about death per se. That's so, it seems so abstract. I'm not afraid. They'll say, I'm not afraid of death. Um, but then they'll say, but I'm afraid of like, what it's going to feel like and is it going to be painful? That, like that moment of transition, you know? And I recently listened to a podcast of a, of a woman who works with children uh, in in the grieving process and experiencing death, and she said, and this is how she explained it. So when student kids were asking her, you know, like what is death, and she says, okay, now listen really closely. And there's no more breath, right? It's a small thing, but you know, I just taught a section of my course on children, death, and dying, and children's experiences about dying. Um, you know, if I were to summarize that entire lecture, I would say, don't lie to kids about death, mm. um, and you know, explaining very particular things about death to children is really important. And I think it's the place we have to start in our cultural transformation around death. Because if we lie to kids about death, if we understand the imagination and the way kids' minds work, the general impulse is that if we talk about death with children, and this is connected to children being in the home around people who are dying and watching their mothers take care of people who have died, the prevailing wisdom, which is incorrect, is thinking that if we talk to children about death, we increase their anxiety, we make them anxious. But in fact, there are lots and lots of peer-reviewed journal articles which will argue the contrary. Namely, we create anxiety when we don't talk about death and we alleviate anxiety when we talk about it. And kids will go to great lengths to you know, try to figure out what is going on when nobody is telling them anything. And they witness their parents crying and they see these things happening and they don't know what it means and no one is telling them what it is. Mm -hmm. It breaks my heart. And what I have discovered in my university classes and particularly on discussions with children about death and dying is that they are the product of that attitude towards children. Mm -hmm. And so it hit a nerve, I think, with these 18, 19, 20-year-old students who read this and witnessed it and said, yeah, that's what happened to me. Grandpa died, he disappeared, and no one ever talked about it again. Or my friend in high school died, and no one talked about it. There was no space for the conversations. And this is where I think death denial is not just something that I you know, work really hard to... Um, you know, to to illuminate and bring out into the open and have conversations about, but it's damaging. Is da it has really damaging effects, and I think that there's not enough attention being paid to the fact that this is a really damaging culture. It's an anxiety-producing culture. It's it 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 you know, it leaves people feeling, you know just terribly afraid of something that is so completely normal and natural. And that's what I 
you know, that's why I think death education is so important. You are listening to WLRN. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, it also does kids a disservice. There's an exa- There's one story in uh, one of the articles that we read about death and dying and children. And uh, it's uh, a story about a child who is, is, has a terminal condition and is dying. And the parents are absolutely unwilling to talk about it with anyone. And they don't want the child to know about it. And so they forbade, exactly, forbade all of the medical staff, all the medical team say, do not talk to him. Do not let him know what this diagnosis is. Again, really, in in a sense, in a feeling. And, you know, look, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to be critical of the parents who do this. I will. They're, they're, well, I mean, I am. I, could, I, I am could, technically. I could do it for you. You could do it for me. But, but I mean, you understand where it's coming from, right? They're of trying course. to protect the child. But I think this is where we, we are sometimes misguided in our understanding of protection. And so what does this child do? And this is, this is narrated by uh, a nurse who is working with the child. What does the child do? The child has a stuffed snake. We call salami the snake. And salami the snake has a terminal condition and is dying. So the child, actually, this is about the smartness of kids around death. The child had to create an alter ego who was dying because no one addressed the kid who was dying. It is absolutely, and again, this is just one little example of the myriad ways in which our culture, you know, tries to make death something, this is the problem, tries to turn death into something morbid, and by turning it into something morbid, ensures that we never talk about it. Just as a feminist, I think about how paradoxical it is to have a culture that is hell-bent on killing the living world. <laughs> and yet and yet here we are like um, refusing to talk about our own mortality. Yep. But I feel like for me, like as a, like I, like I was saying, as a feminist, I feel like for me, it it does go in line with our separation from nature, the natural world we've often referred to, and not we, like I don't necessarily mean me or you, but like as a culture, as Mother Earth. I think that this culture has done a really good job of placing a hierarchy on or a value system on this planet right yeah and that value system is obviously less than that of a male and the male is the one doing the killing yeah right yeah and so that separation from the planet makes sense but it's also like i said paradoxical in the way that we have this obsession with warring which of course produces death Mm -hmm. you know and the ultimately like mining which is a very destructive and death-inducing sort of practice. Um, and then we just don't talk about it at all. We can't ever talk about it. And even abattoirs, like, you know, whatever, are, you know what I mean? There's no windows on those damn places yeah. either. Yeah. Well, the natural, I mean, you know, just to continue that paradigm, you know, Francis Bacon, what, what did Francis Bacon say about the natural world? Just sort of the beginning of this, you know, raping and pillaging of earth. You know, we're going we're gonna to put nature to the rack and we're going to make her answer our questions, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so that very patriarchal, uh, you know, way of thinking about the natural world is the one we've all inherited. Um, and it's, you know, in some ways, I, I think that what 
death doulas are doing. And I'm sure there are some uh, men who are death doulas. All of the death doulas I know happen to be women. But uh, I think that the death work that they and I are doing is a form of resistance to the patriarchy. It is reclaiming the work of our ancestors. It is reclaiming the work that we have always done. I love it. Yeah. It's reclaiming our it's reclaiming our spot in the natural world too, right? Yeah. Yes. Yes. You know? Yeah. I was at a death symposium in Toronto in twenty eighteen. Cheers. I was at a death symposium in Toronto in twenty eighteen and uh, it was a comment that was actually raised when we there were probably about four hundred people in the room. Uh, those that was in the before times when four hundred people could be in a room together. Yeah. <laughs> And we, we, we looked around, or someone in the audience looked around and made a comment about women in death care. Uh, I would say 95% of the people in that room were women. And, you know, so it is, it is not a coincidence that it is women who are doing this work. Mm-hmm. Um, I chose to do my death doula training, uh, not only with a woman, but a, a woman of color, uh, because I felt that I needed you know, that perspective in terms of, you know, sort of being a white, uh, queer, uh, you know, death worker that, that I, that I feel like when I'm thinking about, uh, the kind of death work that I do, that I want it to be as inclusive as possible. Do you feel like being a lesbian allows you to have a unique view when doing the work that you do? I guess, well, I, I guess if anything, it just is, it gives me an insider's view to the ways in which, uh, you know, people are marginalized in their, in their care and in their dying in particular. Uh, and, you know, especially I would say for, for me personally, and for a lot of, you know, other lesbians, uh, that I know that one of the biggest concerns has, around end of life has to do with family coming in and trying to override, you know, relationships that might not be, you know, legal marriages and so on. And the, the silencing or the, you know, invisibility of one's partner. And, and there are lots of incidences in which this has, you know, been really tragic in people's experiences of end of life. But, 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 to, but to widen that, you know, my, my, my death education courses, and I teach two of them at my university. Uh, but the one where I talk about end of life care in particular has turned into a social justice course. It, uh, by necessity, because what I, you know, at the beginning, it was a course on death, dying and spirituality and end of life care. And so we were looking at different religious traditions and all of the different rituals and things, which is really important and, and helpful. And I think it's a good thing for people to know and understand. But what I, what I kept bumping up against was this idea of the good death that we were seeing in our culture, largely, you know, sort of a Western white privileged culture about, you know, the ways in which we can have the good death and witnessing all of the people who were um, blocked from that idea of the good death. So the obstacles for, you know, indigenous peoples, people of color, LGBTQ folks, um, the, the homeless, uh, all of the ways in which there were, in fact, real barriers 
to what we have defined, you know, I think wrongly as this notion of a good death. And so the course morphed into what I would call a social justice course. The students begin by reading an article on death as a social justice issue. And, and we look at those marginalized populations and, you know, what does it mean to be homeless and uh, dying? And what kind of care do we provide? I mean, unfortunately, fortunately, we have um, amazing health justice activists like Nahid Dosani, who's coming to my class next week, uh, who are, you know, providing palliative care to the homeless, for people who have homes. You know, the question that's always asked, you know, where do you want to die? The majority of people will answer that question and say they want to die at home. What is in fact the case is most people die in hospital, more people die in hospital than at home. But what if you don't have a home, right? So, so I think that all these little cracks in the edifice of this notion of the good death are revealing the ways in which our society and our culture are failing the most vulnerable around us. Um, and so I think that this is why it's important in death education, which is what I am doing, to ensure that my students are aware of all of these things. So that, I think really that's why the, the course is just transformed into looking at, you know, how do we care for indigenous folks in end of life uh, when, when the kinds of, you know, sort of, you know, family dynamics and spiritual dynamics require, you know, especially if someone's in a hospital, that the entire family drops everything and they come to the bedside. Well, what do we do when we're in uh, hospitals that don't allow more than two visitors, right? What, you know, how do, how are we dealing with those kinds of things? Um, and, and, you know, we can't, we can't necessarily know what all of the, the, the precise needs are for different groups, different spiritual groups, different religious groups, but we can listen to them and try and, and those who work in death care, try and find ways to accommodate them, you know? And, and so I think that's really important. No one can have a catalog of every, Yes, you know, I've taught religion for, you know, 25 years, but I well, would still not feel competent to say that I know yeah. what every different religious yeah. group needs in end of life. So we have to find ways to be attentive and open and aware yeah. to, to what people need and to listen to them, right? We don't have to understand it, but we have to listen to them and hear them. Yeah. The kind of things I'm teaching, the kind of work we're doing together, it's so personal, it's so intimate in so many ways, and it just doesn't seem right. I, you know, if, if, if my understanding of good death care means that as a death doula, as a death worker, as someone who is companioning those who are dying, it, it always comes from a position of a fellow mortal, that, mm. that, I, am, that I am going to be there too. And so there has to be that identification. And so... As a deaf educator, I feel like it's just, it's a natural consequence of the way I think about deaf work, the way I think about the, the work I do in education. We are yeah. all, you know, yeah. in the same space. Mm. Yeah. I do love you. <laughs> <laughs> and, but you still didn't talk about what made you want to become a doula. Oh, Maybe right. you did. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, no, I, I didn't. I know I didn't. as a friend. Yeah. But go ahead. Sure. Hit me. Um, I, I came into death work the way most of the people I have seen come into death work. Um, and that is through experiencing a death and not just that, but experiencing a, a death 
it, the death wasn't traumatic, but my experience and the after effects of it was traumatic. And that was the death of my father mm-hmm. 21 years ago. Um, and he died of cancer and he was able to be at home taken care of by my mother, myself. I was out of town in Sudbury teaching at Laurentian and my siblings who were running the family business. So all of us made it possible for him to die at home. And, you know, I tell this story a lot, but we were sitting there one night, my dad and I, and my mom had gone to bed and we were holding hands and he was on his hospital bed in the living room and I was lying on the couch beside him. And he thanked me for being there. And I said, of course. And then he said, what, what do people do who don't have someone to be here mm-hmm. with them like this? Your dad was thinking about somebody else. My well, dad he was, was someone, thinking. No wonder you're so wonderful, Susan. It's pretty much an amazing thing about my father because he was. He was thinking about other people who don't have a family. And look, I don't have children. So, you know, this has always been a really powerful kind of emotion for me uh, to, you know, to anticipate my own end. I'm hoping my students come through. <laughs> and then I feel like, you know, all the students over all the years in death education will all be, you know, death doulas and so on, and they'll come and help me. But but not having that, you know, that family there. And we're a really tight family. And I think we gave my dad the best end of life uh, possible. But I was really traumatized by that death. And it mostly in the form of a kind of shutting down um, because of, you know, the fear of how that much love hurts when it ends. Right. And I, and I just, I just felt the only way to protect myself from any future hurt was to just encase my heart in ice, so to speak. I was jokingly referred to as the ice queen by some friends during that time in my life, but that lasted for about 10 years. And it, and, you know, it finally broke, thank goodness. Um, but so that's why. And, and so within a year of my father dying, I did go to the Palliative Care Association where I lived and did the training to become a palliative care volunteer and started volunteering. And I, because what I have later come to realize is that my dad's question to me that night uh, was his you know, direction for me or his advice to me or a calling that I had to follow, which is I have to go and be with the people. I don't want people to die alone. And I think that that's, you know, really more than anything. I think this is something that I feel the most passionately about. And that's why I continue to volunteer uh, as a palliative care volunteer with our local traveling hospice, because the thought of anyone dying alone to me is just, it's, it's unnecessary and unimaginable. And, and I think my dad, you know, by thinking about others when he was dying revealed to me. And so, so I've since then for the past 20 years have done it and it has really helped me. I've, I've often said that doing palliative care work, um, working with new mentor, like mentoring new palliative care volunteers and teaching death, is been a form of therapy for my own death anxiety, but also because I want to ensure that my students and the coming generations do not experience the trauma I had experienced. I really think that had I been part of the death positive movement, had I been aware of this, had I witnessed more death and been around death and more comfortable with death, that I would not have been so traumatized. 
So that's a really important goal is to reduce death trauma, death anxiety. And the only way we're going to do that is to start talking about it. The only way we're going to do it is to educate ourselves, to bring death back into the home uh, and to have those difficult conversations. I mean, life is about practice, right? Whatever it is that you're mm-hmm. not good at, you got to practice it. We do. Yeah. We'll but don't you want to be composted? I think we should. I we do. Have to get composting here. Oh, yeah, for we sure. Have to get compost. I, I'm, I have, you know, learned so much about the kinds of legal things you can choose that you do not have to be embalmed, you know, to go back to this issue about the corruption of the planet, yeah, right? You don't have to have a million toxic chemicals injected into your veins. I don't um, want them. You don't have to have them. It is completely not required. This is the importance of education. So yes. I, so that I became aware of that because we just do it. This is the whole, this is the problem with outsourcing death is we've outsourced it and let those take over and what no and, and you know there are some really good mom pa operations and I don't want to dismiss all funeral um, operators but we have let those take over and they're polluting the planet mm-hmm. uh, it's all for money this is all driven by capitalism it's all driven by money and we need to be aware of that and how they're making the decisions about what we do with our dead and your access to the dead and so the more people know what they are legally entitled to, the more things will change. And so I contacted my local cemetery in my township and I found out, can I be buried in a pine box made by my partner? Uh, yes. Can I be buried in a cardboard box drawn on by all of the kids in my neighborhood? Yes. Do I have to have the concrete uh, casing that keeps your cemeteries from sinking? No, not necessary. We don't need to put a concrete vault in. So I can have a natural burial. That means I can be, uh, and I have detailed instructions about how to do this to make sure that people know it's in my death kit, that this is what I want. So I want to be uh, at home. I want to be bathed and anointed. I want to be wrapped in a shroud. I want to be put in either a cardboard and decorated or wood and decorated box. And I want to be buried and, you know, enter back into the earth, right? Um, but I wouldn't have known that if it wasn't for my own death education, right? Mm-hmm. You got to ask. You got to find out what you want and you can do it. But yes, other than natural burial is my first choice. But if we ever had composting, human composting, that seems to me an even better option. I know. Because you're not taking up land uh, for burial, I had the very first time that I quit smoking, I was 18, because I had a vision of my body being left in the woods and nothing eating it. And I was like, that's it, man. I'm not going to smoke it anymore because it tripped me right Because up. they wouldn't want to eat yeah, your smoker's dude, body. That's what I'm saying. That's why. And I was I like, this, it. I can't do this. Like, I'm not going to defile my body like this. If nothing's ever, I'm not going to be useful to anything after when I'm dead. But yeah, no, that was one of the things that I thought. But who knows? Yeah. Who knows, Susan? Maybe we're going to live until we're old enough that civilization is completely busted down and we don't yes. even care what the hell we do with our dead anymore. And, and then you and I get our wish to <laughs> just get tossed out. We just get tossed out. And, and the chickadees. And yeah, the, they take care of us. Yeah, everybody yeah. else is takes care of us and they'll be like thank it's you. quite possible thank you for quitting smoking april you <laughs> taste so much better you now taste so much better <laughs> with the more formaldehyde in your lungs oh my god 
So I think we talked about so much, but what about men? Do you think that men are more afraid? Mm. Like have, whenever you're sitting there as a palliative care worker, do you think that men are like, I can't die? You know, because okay, this morning I was reading about biotech companies. I was tripping out about all different sorts of stuff. And William Shatner, of course, has gotten a big, um, like he's just gotten a whole bunch of flack because of course he went up into space. But now, a new task, a probe out into where no man has gone before. And then he tried to like, he tried to like flip the script and was like, oh, it's such a beautiful planet and I'm crying and all this stuff. And then, but really he has been one of those celebrities who's been at the forefront of these biotech companies to like prolong his life. Yeah. Not just cryogenics, it's okay. like the biotech companies that are like stem cells from a very young person and getting them injected into him in hopes that he prolongs oh his life, right? That's yeah. just, I think, the most grotesque form of death denial to me. Yeah. Is right. is wanting to live forever. Who, who the hell wants to live forever anyway? I don't. Would you try for one moment to feel, at least act like you've got a heart? Who knows what waits for us anyways? Mm. Could be magical. I know. Uh, you know, to me, that's just like an open question of wonder rather than something terrifying. Yeah, it, it's all how you frame it, right? Yeah, you're right. Yeah. And the current framing is don't talk about don't it. talk about it. So it's terrifying. So that and again, just like you don't talk to children, you increase their anxiety. You talk mm-hmm. to them, you decrease their anxiety. It's the same. It's the same formula, right? We don't talk mm-hmm. about it, so it just compounds our fear. In the end, I think death care is community work. Yeah, that all folks need to be part of death care. We need communities to do this. We are facing what is likely going to be an unprecedented, uh, you know, sort of inundation of elderly coming into our healthcare system. And we are not equipped. I am already witnessing it on a very small scale in this small town with, you know, sort of the number of palliative care clients who we are supporting as a as a traveling hospice volunteer association. And it is only going to increase. So, you know, part of the reason that I'm interested in being a death working as a death doula is to ultimately train people to do this, right? You don't have to have special skills. I am I have no special skills. I am a non-medical companion to help people through the dying process as a death doula, as a volunteer. That doesn't mean you don't have specialized skills, though. I, but I but think... what I'm saying is that everyone Maybe can yes. do death work. Yeah. We always did, right? We didn't have death doulas, you know, 100 yes. years ago taking care of the well, people Well, we certainly died. weren't calling them that. We weren't That's calling them that. For sure. Yeah. But, yeah. So, so yes, obviously there's skill involved and, and things like that. And... Obviously not everyone, you know, is going to feel comfortable doing this kind of work, but there are so many aspects to death work that they don't have to involve, you know, I mean, I had a, I had a a friend and a colleague who did the training with the Palliative Care Association and uh, went and sat with his first client and, you know, pretty much metaphorically ran from the room, right? And realized that this is just not his jam. And so what he ended up doing with the association was helping with grant writing. He was an academic and he was really good at it and he got the the hospice association money, right? So 
you know, we all have different skill sets and they might not all be with, you know, doing that death, intimate death care or, or, or vigiling and those kinds of things. But there are a lot of things along that process, both ends of the spectrum where you can do that kind of work. But I guess, but I still really maintain that this is community work, all Mm -hmm. community. And the more we involve all members of the community, the more inclusive it can be, the more just it can be. And, and it's ultimately dismantling and taking it out of the hands of the capitalist system and taking it out of the hands of the funeral industry and taking control of something that we have always as humans controlled, right? Um, that's the death revolution for me. Do you have any music, any songs that come to mind about death and dying? There's a song that I love, and it's um, by Over the Rhine called Earthbound Love Song, and it's on their latest album. And there's, but the line about it is <clears throat> about death. Um, it's something like, we don't know who's going to bury who. And it, it, that's, and it's like, then we need an earthbound love song, like Johnny and June or whatever. It's anyway, it's kind of country-ish and small schmaltzy and stuff. When you find your little dream Cost you everything I hope your broken bluebird heart still sings That this notion of we don't know who's going to bury who That it's just, it, it strikes me as kind of our experience in the world, right? That, that we... It, it points to the mystery of death that we don't know who's going to go first. In an earthbound love song. If you think about it in relationships, you know, this is, you know, who's going to bury who. But I think it just speaks generally to this notion of um, that we're all just walking this path. I mean, quote Ram Das, and we're all just walking each other home. That's, that's how he talks about death, right? Some questions cannot be answered. Who's gonna bury you? Um, and I think, and, and that, you know, that's what palliative care is to me, walking people home. But the mystery of we don't know who's gonna bury who is the fact that we don't know when we're gonna die. We're all fellow mortals, and that's why we have to take care of one another, right? So when I sit with my 98 year old your old palliative client, um, I'm just as vulnerable to death as she is. You know, it might look like she's going sooner, but that's not necessarily the case. There's no guarantees that way. And so I think the more we remind ourselves of that, that we're not taking care of the dying. We are the dying. We are all dying. On an earthbound love song. So, ha- and, and this comes back to that point about our interconnectedness, right? We all need to support one another through this mystery that is life and death. Because we don't know who's going to bury who or when it's going to happen. So that's my song. I love you so much. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for tuning in to another WLRN Extended Interview. I hope you all enjoyed that conversation I had with Dr. Susan Shridley. 
If you haven't already, please be sure to check out our podcast this month dedicated to a feminist study of death and dying, wherein we feature women's news from a feminist perspective, written and delivered by Emily Ann Lorenzen, women's music, interviews including a shortened version of the one you just heard, and commentary from WLRN longtime member Sekhmet Chiao. We would always love to hear from you, so please comment, like, and share widely, sisters. This is April No, bidding you all a great season of reflection as all the leaves fall off the trees and silence takes over the forest once again.